2009, November 10th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 32, The Lives of Stars. We're in, in this section here, the goal is to try to understand where we should be looking for life around other stars. And the only way we're going to do that is we have some understanding of what the properties of stars actually are. So today we're going to, yesterday we, we looked at what are the basic properties of stars, observed properties of stars. We defined luminosity, temperature, we talked a bit about the mass and radius and the relationships among them, and ended up with the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Today I want to now take that theme and step a bit forward and say how is it the stars work? What is the basic operating physics of stars? And what does that inform us about what we should be looking for in terms of trying to figure out which stars are the ones we should be considering as possible harbors for life? So today's lecture is going to be considering the lifetimes of main sequence stars. That broad diagonal band in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram containing 85% of most nearby stars does so because, in fact, most stars spend most of their lifetimes as a main sequence star. So today will really be about main sequence. That's where it's important. After that, everything else is very quick and transitory. The first fact I want to get across today is that stars shine because they are hot. The trick is keeping them hot for a long, stable period of time. And for that, they need a source of energy. That source of energy could be gravitational contraction, or, as we're going to see, we talk about stars on the main sequence, that source of energy is going to be nuclear fusion deep in their cores. And the particular way that they fuse um, to make energy is they fuse hydrogen into helium. And the excess, energy, excess matter left over from that is turned into pure energy. It's an extremely efficient form of energy. In fact, there's only one or two forms of energy in the universe that are more efficient than hydrogen fusion. We're going to see that main sequence stars, that broad band, is defined fairly simply physically. They are those stars that are generating energy by fusing the hydrogen to helium in their central cores. That's the real distinction that makes that broad diagonal band. What we're also going to find is that once we've decided what, what the physics is going on, we're going to find there's something else about the main sequence. Where you are along the main sequence depends entirely upon your mass. So it turns out that that main sequence is, in fact, a mass sequence from very large, very high luminosity stars to very low mass, low, low, low luminosity stars. More massive stars are brighter. Sort of makes sense, but we're going to see a way in which that's actually going to have some interesting consequences for us. And finally, we're going to see that the amount of fuel you have, the amount of hydrogen you have available for fusion, and how fast you are burning it gives you a measurement of the lifetime of that star on the main sequence. You can only live on the main sequence as long as you are burning hydrogen to helium, and when you run out of hydrogen, you're all done. You have to leave the main sequence. And so we're going to be able to take these two facts, that the lumin uh, main sequence is a mass sequence, and that luminosity depends very strongly on mass, to find out that the lifetime of a star depends very strongly, the main sequence lifetime depends very strongly on its mass. And that's going to be one of the key insights we're going to be able to carry forward to set an actual constraint on where we should be looking for planets that are stable long enough to actually have the possibility of having life. So the goal today is to understand something about the properties of main sequence stars and use that to give us insights into the nature of life. So if we get a clear night out here in the wintertime coming up, go outside at night in the northern hemisphere and you see the constellation of Orion. A couple of stars to point out. I'm going to throw these numbers at you for illustration. I don't expect you to memorize these because I had to look them up too. 
But we can see that definitely the stars have colors. For example, the star in the upper, right, upper left-hand corner here in the shoulder of Orion is Betelgeuse. It is an M2 supergiant star. It's got a relatively low temperature, 3,500 Kelvin. Its luminosity is a little over 100,000 times the luminosity of our sun. It is 940 solar radii in diameter and is 18 times the mass of our sun. It really is a supergiant star. The other shoulder is this bright blue star here named Bellatrix. It turns out that's a B3 giant. It's a blue giant. It's got a very much hotter temperature. It's 21,000 degrees Kelvin. It shines at 4,000 times the luminosity of our sun, but it's only about six times the radius of the sun and about eight times the sun's mass. So we can see a great deal of difference here. There's some, somehow we've gone only 10 solar masses, and yet we've gone a huge jump in luminosity and temperature and everything else. Finally, down this bright star down here, one of the feet of Orion is Rigel. It's a B8 supergiant. So it, too, is gigantic. It's about, huh, blocked off there, isn't it? That's about 17 times the mass of the sun, 78 Earth sun solar radii, and 66,000 solar luminosities of energy pouring off this 11,000 Kelvin star. The difference between 11,000 Kelvin and 3,000 Kelvin for these two different supergiants makes the difference between a B star and an M star, a blue supergiant and a red supergiant. We can see, just in the night sky, these differences in temperatures. And what we saw last time was that there's a strong correlation among the brightness of the stars and the temperatures that they achieve, the so-called Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. So we want to get below, we want to understand why the HR diagram is the way it is. Here's a basic fact. It's one that actually is one that's surprisingly even some graduate students in astrophysics get wrong the first time until we hammer it into their skulls. Stars shine because they are hot. It is, they do not shine because of nuclear reactions. They shine because they are big, hot balls of gas in cold space. And hot things will always radiate into cold. So what we're seeing, what starlight is, has nothing to do with nuclear fusion to a first approximation. It has to do with the fact that i got a big, hot, dense ball of gas. That ball of gas is sitting in the cold of space, and it is leaking energy from its surface. And starlight is basically the internal energy of the hot star leaking out into space. It comes out in the form of radiation. Specifically, it comes out as what we call a roughly thermal spectrum, or a so-called black body spectrum emitting light at all wavelengths, but a peak wavelength which depends fairly strongly on its temperature. If it's very hot, that peak wavelength is out in blue colors. If it's very cool, that peak wavelength shifts to red colors. Now, we defined last time luminosity as the total power output from a star. Now I want to be more specific. Physically, what luminosity is, it's the rate of energy loss of a star. So if I have a great big hot ball of gas, the luminosity is telling me how many joules per second of energy is leaking out of that big hot ball of gas. Now if I've got a big hot ball of gas and it's leaking energy, and there's no other source of energy available to replace the energy it has lost, it is going to cool off and fade out. So stars will only shine for as long as their internal heat will let them, unless they're able to find some source of energy that can make up for that lost energy. So if all I had was a big hot ball of gas that didn't do anything but just sit there and be hot, it would fade out and get cooler. It would just cool off, just like a glowing ember. If I heated up a piece of steel in a flame here till it was glowing red hot and then took it out of the flame and held it up, what's it do? It just fades out from blue-white 
to yellow to red and eventually cools off to equilibrium with surrounding room. If a star was a big static ball of gas, that's what it would do. It would start out at thousands of degrees Kelvin and then relatively quickly, a few hundred million years, completely cool off and become a cold ember. But it's not just sitting there. There are two things that will happen. If it has no internal source of energy, if it cools off, it's using pressure to hold itself up against gravity. It would actually begin to slowly contract under its own weight. It would get smaller and actually be able to keep itself hot for maybe as long as 100, 200 million years for something the size of the sun. That's not very long. We know the Earth is at least 4.6 billion years old in round numbers. So something has to be giving it energy to keep it hot over long periods of time. Furthermore, we know from various pieces of evidence, including detailed model calculations, that the sun was about 70% its brightness 3.5 billion years ago compared to today. So whatever that source of energy is, it's been sufficient to keep the sun burning at a relatively steady rate for about 4.5 billion years. That's where nuclear fusion comes in. It provides a source of energy which keeps the star hot and steadily burning for a long period of time. It replaces the energy it loses at its surface. There's a question there in the room. Yeah. I was just asking about like new stars. Are new stars able to form, or basically what we have is what we'll always have? That's a good question. Are new stars forming? The answer is yes. New stars are forming all the time in our galaxy. They form at a rate of, of, of a couple stars about the size of the sun per year. Now, there's 200 billion stars in the galaxy. When stars first form, they form out of collapsing balls of gas. We haven't talked much about star formation in this class. Probably won't say a lot about it. It's when they form, they get their energy from gravitational contraction. It's only at some point that nuclear fusion kicks into play. So in fact, stars are constantly forming and stars are also dying, which is the subject of a lecture we'll pick up on Thursday when we get done with that. That's a good question. So where are we going to get this extra energy? How is it the sun can stay shining for at least four and a half billion years? And the answer turns out to be nuclear fusion. The way nuclear fusion works is as follows. Imagine that I could take four hydrogen nuclei, that's four protons, and smash them together and somehow make them into a helium nucleus with two protons and two neutrons. We'll say how we do that in just a second. If I add up the weight of four protons and compare it to the weight of one helium atom, so four particles in, four particles in a tight nucleus out, I find, in fact, that that helium nucleus, that two protons plus two neutrons, weighs slightly less than the four incoming protons by only 0.7%. It's tiny, seven parts out of a 1,000. So if I took one kilo of pure hydrogen and through a process of nuclear fusion, turned it into helium, I wouldn't get a kilo of helium out. I'd get 0.993 kilos of helium out. I've lost seven thousandths of a kilo, or seven grams of energy, or seven grams of matter. Where did it go? Well, what Einstein told us is that matter and energy are interchangeable. E equals mc squared. That's what that's all about. So the seven grams of energy doesn't disappear. It turns into pure energy. So if I plug in Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared, and for m, for my kilogram of hydrogen into 0.993 kilos of helium, I take my 7 grams of matter, multiply it by the speed of light squared. The speed of light is 300,000 meters per second. Sorry, 1,000 kilometers per second. Excuse me, 300 million meters per second. Square it, that's a big number. I get out 6.3 times 10 to the 14 joules. 
How much is 6.3 times 10 to the 14 joules? It's enough to lift 64 megatons one kilometer in the air. If we could get out of 7 grams of matter, pure energy, I would basically have an extremely high-grade explosive. right? Pick up a mountain and throw it a kilometer in the air. That's a lot of energy from 7 grams of matter. So how, this is a prodigious amount of energy. And it turns out to be available to make stars work, if you can get the conditions inside of stars to let this fusion occur. So how do we do this trick? How does a star go about this almost seemingly magical trick of turning four hydrogens into a helium? Well, one of the most common ways this occurs for most stars, there are variations on this theme, of course, is to follow actually not a single step, putting four protons together and having two of them suddenly turn into neutrons is a highly unlikely thing. So it has to go through a multi-step nuclear reaction chain. And this nuclear reaction chain in particular, the one that dominates in our sun, is called the proton-proton chain. It works like as follows. A proton and a proton collide at very high speed. These things both have positive charges, so normally they just bounce off each other. But as you move faster and faster, you get closer and closer until finally, if you're moving so fast, if the gas is so hot, they can actually make contact. A nuclear reaction can occur that turns one of the protons into a neutron, emitting out a positron and a neutrino. You have to have a temperature in excess of 10 million degrees Kelvin for two protons to get close enough for that to reaction to occur. Once you trigger that reaction, a cascade chain starts. Proton and proton turns into a deuterium, a hydrogen isotope, a proton plus a neutron. Do it twice, and I've converted four protons into two deuteriums. A deuterium collides with a proton. Again, has to be at high temperature. Makes an isotope of helium, helium-3, two protons plus a neutron, and spits out energy. Hmm, there's some of our energy. And this happens twice. The second deuterium hits a sixth proton. So now I've got six protons in, and I've got two helium-3 nuclei out. I then take the two helium-3 nuclei, collide those together, forming a helium nucleus, helium-4, with two protons and two neutrons, and out pops the two extra protons. Net input, four protons. Net output, one helium. The two protons that come in at this stage essentially pop out here. They're catalytic. And in the intermediate step, I produce energy. I produce energy in the form of photons, high energy gamma rays. That's what the gamma's for. Positrons, which are anti-electrons, and neutrinos, which also carry off energy. This is how I get that 0.7% of mass energy out of the system. So if I can raise the temperature in the sun to above 10 million degrees Kelvin while the sun is collapsing, this nuclear reaction network will basically ignite. It produces so much energy that it can cause the sun to shine for almost 10 billion years without losing, with, in fact, getting steadily brighter over that time, not even fading out. So it's a tremendous source of energy. It is the primary source of energy in most of the universe for stars. Now, the details of this are not as important to us. I show this as an illustration saying these networks occur, and we can compute the reaction networks in great detail. We can also see the neutrinos that come streaming out of the sun. They act like a kind of nuclear smoke, if you will, to these reactions which are going on deep in the sun's interior, where they're invisible to us. 
The rate of neutrinos that we measure coming out of the sun, modulus and physics we're not going to talk about here in this class, in fact matches what we would calculate from a straightforward numerical model of this nuclear fusion. So we in fact know this occurs within our sun and by extension in other stars. So what does that do for us? Once we get nuclear fusion, stars are able to stay hot and stably hot for a long period of time. And that's what's going to give us the main sequence. What makes a star a member of the main sequence here is that that is where it lives when it's at the phase of its life where it is stably burning hydrogen into helium through fusion inside of its core. So a main sequence star is a hydrogen fusion in the core star. This sort of implies that the hydrogen fusion can occur outside the core sometimes too, and those are what happens after the star ages off the main sequence that we'll talk about on Thursday. Now, the main sequence turns out to be a mass sequence. If I look at the hottest and most luminous stars on the main sequence, they also turn out to be the highest mass stars on the main sequence. The lowest luminosity, lowest temperature stars along this red band of the main sequence here in my HR diagram also turn out to be the lowest mass stars. So low mass main sequence stars are cool and low luminosity. High mass main sequence stars are hot and high luminosity. So this tells us right away that the main sequence is a mass sequence. And where I land along that main sequence is uniquely determined by my mass. So the sun, for example, is a one solar mass star. It lies right there on the main sequence at one solar luminosity and in fact is a G star. So the main sequence is a mass sequence. Now, let's take this and see what this, what this gives us. Okay. One of the first things that pops out is that relationship between high mass, high luminosity for main sequence and low mass, low luminosity turns out to be an exceedingly tight correlation. What this plot shows is actual data for all stars for which we have very good distances to measure luminosities and very good masses from binary stars. And of course the sun we have a very good mass for there and the sun is the sort of red target symbol there. And what we've plotted is on the horizontal axis I'm plotting the solar ma this star's mass in units of the sun's mass from about 1 to about 20 solar masses. That turns out to be about the upper limit for which I've got good masses when this diagram was made. On the vertical axis, I'm plotting solar lumino luminosity in units of the sun's luminosity. So the sun is here at one solar mass and one solar luminosity. But look at the range here. In mass, I have a, basically a factor of 100, from about a tenth of a solar mass up to yeah, about 20 solar masses. But I have a range from one one-thousandth the luminosity of the sun at the low end to nearly 100,000 times the luminosity of the sun at the high end. There is eight mil a factor of eight, I'm sorry, a factor of a hundred million difference in luminosity from the faintest main sequence star to the brightest main sequence star, but only about a factor of a hundred in mass. So a factor of ten to the eight and a factor of a hundred tells me that the luminosity of a star along the main sequence is proportional to its mass to the fourth power. So if I had a two solar mass star on the main sequence, it would have a 2 to the 4th or 16 solar luminosities of brightness. So the luminosity goes up very, very rapidly with the mass. Now that's important to us because remember, what does luminosity measure? It measures the rate at which energy is leaking out of the star. It measures the rate at which it is replenishing that energy by nuclear fusion.
So the luminosity is a measure, it's a proxy of the rate of nuclear fusion going on inside the main sequence star's core. Now I'm going to be very clear in my emphasis here. We're talking about main sequence stars. Giants, supergiants, white dwarf behave by completely different rules. So forget those stars exist for now. We're just talking about the main sequence. We'll talk about those other ones later. That's a different topic for a different day. The main sequence is what concerns me. Now, if we look in detail at the main sequence, what we find is that as I go from the hottest to the coolest stars along the main sequence, from O through M type stars, what I'm seeing is a progression of success successively smaller stars, from high mass at the O stars to the lowest mass at the M stars. I also will have a progression in the physical size of the star, the way in which those stars come into balance between the pressure trying to push them out and the gravity trying to crush them in, reaches an equilibrium at a different size. So what I've drawn here is these colors are correct for the star's temperatures and spectral types. Their physical sizes are scaled correctly. So I've made the sun, I think on this particular plot I made the sun about that big. Okay, That's going to be one solar mass and one radius of the sun. We're a nice G2 star, we're kind of a yellow white. An A0 star is two times, 2.6 times the mass of the sun and 2.3 solar radii, it's somewhat bigger. A O5 star at 60 solar radii is 14 times the radius of the sun. And in fact, to fit it onto this diagram, I had to actually shrink it a little bit because it would actually overfill the thing. So you can imagine that star here would actually be quite large. If the sun here is about this big, we have to scale that up by 14, and that would be bigger than my whole slide. So I kind of shrunk this one in scale. And then finally, when we get down to an M8 star, it's at about 15% the radius of the sun but about one-tenth the mass. So I go progressively from hotter and bluer to cooler and redder. I get physically smaller in radius, and I get much smaller in mass. I have a range of nearly 200 in mass, from the highest mass to the lowest mass main sequence star, but I have a factor of 100 million difference in luminosity. That difference in luminosity makes a big difference in determining, for example, the lifetimes of these stars. So, to recap very quickly, stars shine because they are hot. They can shine steadily for a long period if they have some source of energy they can tap to keep them hot, to make up for the energy they're losing from their surfaces. And if you are a main sequence star, that source of energy you tap is hydrogen fusion, creating helium from four protons. Now, how long can you sustain that? How long can you keep that burning up before you run out of hydrogen. So how long can a main sequence keep shining more or less steadily via hydrogen fusion? Well, it will do so until it runs out of hydrogen in its core. Now remember, for hydrogen fusion to occur, the temperature has to be above 10 million degrees Kelvin. But the outsides of stars are only between about 2,000 and 50,000 degrees Kelvin. So fusion can't happen on the surfaces. But just like in the Earth, with the pressure of the stuff of the Earth pressing down in the middle raises the temperature in the interior of the Earth, so too inside of stars. If I have a gigantic ball of gas, all the weight of that gas pressing on the interior raises the pressure and the temperature on the inside. If the ball of gas is above, it turns out 8% the mass of the Sun and above, that temperature will rise above 10 million degrees Kelvin. That's the threshold for triggering hydrogen fusion. 
So the only place where hydrogen fusion can go on within a star is in those portions of the interior where it is 10 million degrees or hotter. Drop below 10 million degrees, you fall below the threshold, and fusion just stops cold. So there's a very strong division between those parts of the star that can partake in hydrogen fusion and those that cannot. So we can only access a small fraction of the hydrogen fuel. It's like we basically got a, a big gas tank full of hydrogen nuclear fuel, but only some small fraction of it is actually available, can make it, if you will, to the nuclear engine. So it turns out that the time scale, how long you can tap nuclear fusion energy to provide for your luminosity, is in terms of this fairly scary looking equation called the nuclear time scale. It's scary looking, but it's actually simple. Okay. The first piece is, is F. What F is, is the fraction of the star's total hydrogen content that is available for fusion. Okay. The star has a mass M, but I can only tap F of it. F is approximately 10%, or 0.1. So approximately 10% of a main sequence star's mass is in a region that is hot enough for hydrogen fusion to occur. The other 90%, it's too cool cannot partake in fusion, is inaccessible as nuclear fuel. So that's the first piece, what fraction of the star is available for fusion. <coughs> this little epsilon here, this little Greek squiggly E, is an efficiency factor. It tells me when I have fusion occurring, what is the efficiency with which that fusion converts matter into energy? Well, we already know that number, that's 0.7%. Okay, so if I take one kilo of hydrogen, I get 0.993 kilos of helium out, and I end up with 7 grams, 0.007, or 0.7% of the matter, is available to be turned into energy to make up for the lost heat from the luminosity. And of course, how much energy do I get out from mass conversion? It's epsilon m times c squared. There's our mc squared <laughs> for energy conversion. So the top part of the formula is the total energy yield, the total energy potential, of a, of a star of mass m. It has epsilon mc squared times the fraction of energy. So, in the case of the sun, in round numbers, 10% of the sun's hydrogen is available for fusion. It's hot enough where it is. It converts it at an efficiency of 0.7%. So the total energy potential, its total fuel supply, is 10% times 0.7% times the mass of the sun times c squared. That's its energy budget. That's the energy it's got available to burn. The next piece for setting the time scale is I say, how much energy have I got to burn? And L is how fast am I burning it? L is the rate of luminosity. It's the rate of loss. There's a detailed balance that goes on within side of main sequence stars that to a first approximation, there's a little thermostat reaction that goes on. It's a gravity pressure interaction that basically sees to it that the rate of nuclear fusion is exactly balancing the rate of loss of energy at the surface from luminosity. The way this works is pretty simple. The rate of fusion is very strongly temperature dependent. Temperature drops below 10 million degrees Kelvin, poof, fusion shuts off. Temperature goes above 10 million degrees Kelvin. As the temperature goes up, the rate of fusion goes up. It burns more furiously. There's a temperature dependence. It goes like about temperature to the fourth power or so. Actually, it's a little bit stronger than that, depending on the reaction. So what happens is, let's say the nuclear fusion goes a little too fast. Then it makes more energy than the sun can radiate away. So what does it do with the excess energy? Well, it doesn't store it away and sweep it under the rug. 
that excess energy has got to do something. And what it does is it goes into work. It goes into pressure. It pushes the outer part of the sun outward a little bit. It raises it against gravity. But if you raise it against gravity, you lower the pressure. If you lower the pressure, you lower the temperature. You lower the temperature, the fusion reaction damps off, and it falls back down. What if the rate of fusion runs less? Then it produces less energy than it can possibly than it's radiating. It loses a net amount of energy. The loss of net energy means it's got to collapse a little bit, got to contract under gravity to make up for that loss. But if you contract under gravity, you increase your pressure, you increase your pressure, you increase your temperature, which runs the nuclear fusion back up, and you come back into balance. It's like a thermostat, right? Thermostat, thermostat in this room is broken. <laughs> the thermostat in your house hopefully works. What happens? Someone opens the door on a cold winter day, lets a big burst of cold air in, and since they're born in a barn, they keep the door open for a while until you, damn it, close up, shut now the temperature in the room is lower than the thermostat set point. What does it do? It says, oh, I'm lower, turns on the furnace and increases the output of hot, of hot air until the temperature reaches the set point and it shuts the furnace off. Now someone really bundles up the thing and the furnace malfunctions a bit, the room gets too hot. Furnace shuts off until the room cools and the thermostat keeps the room at, you know, 72, 68, wherever you set it back. I'll let you and your roommates argue about what the set point is on the thermostat. But you can see where you can reach an equilibrium in the house between heat being lost through the windows and the doors and heat being replaced by the furnace. The furnace puts out too much heat, the thermostat shuts it off and lets the temperature ramp back down. Temperature drops down too much because someone opens the door, thermostat turns the furnace on to restore the equilibrium. Exactly the same thing happens inside of these stars. So that your luminosity really does get balanced by your rate of fusion. So the luminosity that you measure off the surface of the star is the proxy for how fast the fusion reaction's going on. That's really nice because the mass of a star is observable. We can measure its mass if it's in a binary or got planets around it to measure using orbits. I can measure the luminosity by saying how bright is it and how far away it is. Well, I know what the speed of light is. That one's easy. Nature gives us that one. Nuclear fusion gives us the, the masses of atomic nuclei give us the fusion efficiency number. We can calculate it from atomic physics. And this fraction F, it's a little dicier number. It has to come out of model calculations of what gas balls are like under gravity that tells me what fraction of the star is above 10% or above 10 million degrees Kelvin. So if I put all those numbers together, what this gives me is the total amount of energy I've got divided by the energy per second that I'm losing gives me how long can I, can I shine at this intensity until I run out of my hydrogen fusion. And that we call the nuclear time scale. Now I've spent a lot of time on this because these time scale calculations are really essential to us in, in astrophysics. Now if I put the numbers for the sun in, 10%, 0.7%, one solar mass, c squared, divided by the luminosity of the sun. I get a number out for the sun. The nuclear time scale is approximately 10 billion years. So what that tells me is, to a first approximation, ignoring the details, if the sun was shining at its current luminosity, given its mass and given 10% of available hydrogen, it can sustain that for 10 billion years. 
Turns out there's details. The sun actually grows slightly brighter over its history. The rate of nuclear reactions gets a little bit damped in various ways. There's details, but 10 billion years is the right order of magnitude. So the sun can shine via hydrogen fusion for 10 billion years. That's a good thing because we're four and a half billion years old. We're about halfway through the hydrogen in the star's core. In fact, a detailed model shows we, the sun has, by this time, burned 49% of its available hydrogen fuel. It's got another 51% to go. It's got another roughly 5 billion years before it runs out. So let's use an analogy to understand what this means for stars other than the sun. And we're going to now say stars are cars. Stars are like cars. So let's take part one. Let's say your car is one of these weenie little Euro cars, right? It's basically, it's a small, highly fuel-efficient economy car. It's got a very small fuel tank, because if you put a gigantic fuel tank on it, it would weigh so much it couldn't move. Or you could put three football players on it, and it would weigh so much it couldn't move. It's got a fairly low-power engine. It's got you know, some god-awful little thing that sounds like a lawnmower in it. It's not a very manly car at all. It has a very low power output. But it uses its fuel very efficiently. It gets a lot of go for the gallon. So if I combine those numbers, it's got a low mass, a low weight, it's got a low fuel reserve, but even though I'm carrying less fuel, I'm using that fuel more slowly. I can set the fuel to get myself up to speed because I don't have a lot of mass. The result, this little weenie Euro car can actually get an awful lot of distance before it runs out of its small gas tank. The same thing happens in stars. Low-mass stars are very low luminosity. Their luminosity scales like their, their mass, luminosity scales like their mass to the fourth power. So a star that is one-tenth the mass of the sun has one-ten-thousandth the luminosity of the sun. So even though it has roughly one-tenth the available fuel, it's burning at 10,000 times less. So it can do so for about a thousand times longer than the sun can. So a low-mass star may have a small amount of fuel, but it burns it so much less because of that strong mass dependence of luminosity, it stays on the main sequence virtually forever for a very long time. Now at the other end of the spectrum, Stars as Cars Part 2 is a big car, a Hummer, one of the most stupid vehicles ever made. It gets single digits per gallon when you're lucky and when you're not driving very fast. You maybe make it between gas stations with the thing. It has a gigantic fuel tank. It has to, otherwise you couldn't get down the block without it. It has a really high power V8. This is a manly engine. You can hear this. Room. Oh, it's great. It's great stuff. But what you pay for that big old V8 is the gas mileage sucks. It sucks the fuel out of that thing with a straw. So even though it has a gigantic gas tank, it's got a gigantic engine, which has gigantic energy requirements to move all these tons down the street, and so it burns through its fuel really fast. Instead of being 60 miles to the gallon like the weenie little Euro car, it gets four miles to the gallon or something silly like that, depending on how fast you drive it. The faster you drive it, the worse it gets, because it's got a huge drag. I mean, this is an awful car from the point of view of fuel economy. This is the high-mass stars of cars, right? A 10 solar mass star is 10 to the 4 or 10,000 times more luminous than the sun. It's only got 10 times more fuel, but it's burning it up 10,000 times faster. So it's going to burn through it in no time flat.
So a big star burns through its fuel really, really quickly, even though it has more of it, because its luminosity is so strongly dependent upon its mass. So just like between big cars and small cars, small stars live a long time, burn it slow. Big stars live fast, die young. So let's go back and look now at those numbers, what this nuclear time scale is. The nuclear time scale tells me how long I have to burn my nuclear fuel to be on the main sequence. The mass-luminosity relationship tells me how my luminosity depends upon my mass. Notice that my nuclear time scale depends upon my mass divided by my luminosity, but the luminosity depends upon mass. I can divide the luminosity out of the problem and turn this entirely into one of mass. The time on the main sequence, the nuclear time scale, when I put the numbers in, turns out to be 10 giga years divided by the mass and units of the mass of the sun to the third power. So as a bigger, because mass is in the denominator here, and it's to the third power, high mass main sequence stars have very, very short main sequence lifetimes. Low mass stars have very, very long main sequence lifetimes. So the consequence of the combination of the nuclear time scale, my total fuel reserve divided by my rate at which I'm burning it, and the mass-luminosity relationship, which tells me that my rate of burning is proportional to my mass to the fourth power, tells me that my lifetime on the main sequence is a very strong function of my mass. The bigger the star's mass, the less time it can stay on the main sequence shining steadily. This is the key insight that we need to understand where we should be looking for stars around other planets. Any questions about this before we go on? Because this, this is the real key bit from today. Oh, wait. Okay. So, here's the deal. Big stars, massive stars, live fast and die young. Right? They've got a gigantic amount of fuel, but they've got even bigger fuel requirements. Their luminosity is so big, they've got to burn through that stuff at just in prodigious rates to keep up with the losses of, of the luminosities from their surfaces. So we'll start with the sun. The sun has one, one solar mass, by definition, and therefore has a main sequence lifetime approximately 10 billion years. A B star... 10 times the mass of the sun will have a main sequence life of 10, 10 giga years divided by 10 to the third power, because it goes like 1 over mass cubed, or 10 billion divided by 1,000 is 10 million years. So a 10 solar mass B star in round numbers will burn through its hydrogen in 10 million years. The sun, one-tenth the fuel, takes 1,000 times longer to burn through that fuel. So the strong mass dependence of luminosity is what sets this very strong mass dependence of lifetime. When we go down to an M star, I'll pick an M star here of one-tenth the mass of the sun. Now we have a lifetime of 10 billion years divided by one-tenth cubed. I got a small number in the denominator. It turns out to be 10 trillion years. So if I make an M star, it can stay, get down in the main sequence and burn more or less steady for 10 trillion years. The universe is only about 14 billion years old. So any M star, any M main sequence star you see out there in the sky, and as it turns out, the sky is lousy with them because in fact M main sequence stars are the most common kind of star in the sky. They could potentially live for 10 trillion years, longer than the current age of the entire universe. Whereas if you see a B star, 
you know it's got to be young, 10 million years, which is a geological eye blink. In cosmic terms, gone. It's off the main sequence and gone away. And the sun, well, here we are, four and a half billion years after the formation of the Earth, and we're only halfway through the gas. The gas tank's just showing about a half on the sun. So big stars live fast and die young. Small stars live long, slow lives. Here's the key. This is what we're going to need to know about if we're going to go looking out to see if there's life on other worlds. Remember, this is, after all, about life on other worlds, so we do have to bring that back into play. The consequences of this mass-dependent lifetime are as follows. If you see or an O or a B main sequence star, the highest mass main sequence stars, they have to be young because those things are going to run out of their fuel in a few million years. If you see an M star, you really have no idea how old it is because once they settle down onto the main sequence, they just basically sit there and just burn low and slow for almost a trillion years or more when you work through the details. So you really don't know if you see an M star. Is it a young star? Is it an old star? You have no idea. It's probably as old as the local system of stars, which in our galaxy could be upwards of 10, 12 billion years old. Or it could be born with the sun, and maybe it's 4 billion years old. But you really can't tell. There's no real clue, except when they're very young, to how long they've been there. So they're just long, low, slow, steady burners. The sun, you do have a bit of a clue. They do get steadily brighter, as they age, it has to do with the fact their interior rearranges because you know all that helium they're making? It's got to go somewhere and it piles up in the core. And when it piles up in the core, it kind of pushes stuff out of the way. And that combination of rearranging to make up for all the ash and junk you've got accumulating in your core that you can't do anything with yet causes them to slowly brighten over time. The sun in round numbers is about 4.6 billion years old. It's a little bit older than the, than the Earth because it formed first much more rapidly, and will probably last for another five and a half billion years. It turns out there's, there's some details involved that you can actually bring more hydrogen in slowly, but never enough to fully even everything out. But in about five and a half billion years, the sun's going to completely run out of hydrogen, and it's going to do something else. What else it does, we're going to talk about again on Thursday when we come back. So O and B stars are always going to be young. M stars can be pretty old, and stars like the sun kind of middle-aged on average, unless you know it's very young and you have some clues to that. So what, is, what does this tell us? What is the important bit here? Well, we know, for example, going back to the old history of life on Earth, we know from our solar system that things need time to get going. Okay, for example, the formation of our solar system, we don't really know exactly how long it took to form the solar system around our sun. But the best estimates right now is it's probably at least 10 million years old. Whether it's 10 or 100 million years is still being hotly argued about because it's, it's a hard problem and it's not one that we've ever, we found a good solution to. But we certainly know it can probably go no faster than 10 million years. That's the fastest models of formation anyone's ever came up with. So we need to have at least 10 million years from the point the star hits the main sequence until we can expect to see that planets have actually gotten around forming around that thing. So that's that's one time scale of, of importance. We know from the Earth, the first about 500 million years of our existence, we were getting pummeled by rocks, the leftover bits of that formation process, the so-called epoch of heavy bombardment. We know, for example, that the Hadean epoch, 
lasted from roughly 4.4, 4.5 billion years up to about 3.8 billion years. So again, in round numbers, about 500 million years after all the molten stages of formation were done, we went through this pummeling procedure where the ocean may have built, life may even have emerged, but it got completely exterminated by an asteroid-sized impact. So we have to wait about a half a billion years before the planetary surfaces are stable, not getting pummeled constantly for the Earth, for example, certainly to, for when life finally emerged and got a foothold or a fin hold or whatever it was, flagellum hold that it got in the early oceans of the Earth. So that's another time scale, something around a half a billion years. Now we know that life probably emerged. We certainly can see from the fossil evidence of the oldest stromatolites from the beginning of the Archaean period that life probably arose somewhere within about 100 million years after the last heavy bombardment of the planet. So in round numbers, if I sort of take everything there and round off, I need, just to get life going, I need to have the planets form, I need to have the, their surfaces stabilize, which means no more sterilizing impacts, and they have to then form liquid water, we hope, somewhere, and finally get around to once you have liquid water, it seems to take about 100 million years before the first proto-life emerges, things that we recognize as cellular metabolism. So it's about a half a billion years in round numbers. This gives us an important clue as to where we should be looking. It sets what we call the lifetime constraint on searching for life around other stars. If I want to pick out a star and say it has the potential to have a life-bearing planet, I need a star that's going to be able to shine stably for more than half a billion years, for more than 500 billion years. If I then say that that means I've got to have a main sequence lifetime of more than 500 billion years, that's going to restrict me to stars smaller than three times the mass of the sun. Any larger that star lives less than the amount of time I think I need to form a planetary system, have it calm down, and for life to emerge. Now, again, we have to be careful about using the only example we have as our basis, but we've got to start somewhere. So we can immediately exclude those O and B stars. They're gone so fast that they probably can't even form planetary systems, much less have those planetary systems settle down. It gets to be an even more critical problem when we consider intelligent life. We, us, intelligent life, we think we're intelligent, took about four and a half billion years to emerge. So maybe this even restricts the home stars of intelligent life today to even older stars, which means G, K, and M stars, the low mass portion of the main sequence. I don't expect to find ancient civilizations around stars that only live a billion years, I barely expect to find microbes around stars that live a billion years. Remember, it took nearly four billion years to get to animals on Earth, much less human beings and animals that than think. So this is an important input for where we should be looking. We should probably be looking at the lower mass end of the main sequence, the long-lived, stably burning, hydrogen-burning stars. Any questions? All right, have a good holiday tomorrow, and I will see you all again on Thursday.